Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues and regulatory updates. I'm your host Dave Walters. In today's episode I'm going to be talking with Peter Hogarth, our senior technical partner here in the UK, uh, focusing on the areas that regulators will be uh, have at the top of their radars as we go through the next reporting season. So welcome Peter. Welcome to you too Dave. Good to be back. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, uh, we've got the topic of, of uh, regulators. Our regulator here in the UK, the FRC, has been re- very busy recently with some few publications. Do you want to take us through what we are seeing? Sure. It's uh, at, at the date we're recording this. It's early November, and we've come off the back of what's been a rather busy month for the uh, Financial Reporting Council, the uh, the FRC. Uh, October every year they've produced their annual review of corporate reporting, sort of state of the nation publication, and this year's no different. The annual review of corporate reporting 2018-2019 was published in the last week of October. But that's accompanied by a a wide range of of publications, uh, four thematic reviews on particular uh, aspects of financial reporting were published just before, in most cases, and just after, in one case, the the annual review. And there's also uh, an open letter that is included within the annual review, but also published separately on matters that are of particular interest to finance directors, order committee chairs, matters they might consider mm-hmm. when um, concluding the next round of, uh, of, of annual reports. Now, this was late October. Uh, the FRC is one of many uh, regulators, financial reporting enforcers, you might call them, although it's a rather scary term, <laughs> yes. uh, within the European Union and the uh, European Securities and Markets Authority, ESMA, just before uh, the FRC published their documents, uh, released its enforcement priorities for the current year. And there's, there's a great deal of similarity between those areas that ESMA would like to see European enforcers focusing on and those that the FRC has then said it will be focusing on. So that's not surprising really, is it? Now, we could, uh, during the course of this conversation, say, well, ESMA say this, FRC say that. I think that would be terribly unhelpful. Yeah. So what... Um, it's okay with you we can just talk about is those areas which frankly whichever regulator it might be we'd expect there to be some degree of focus on uh, in the coming reporting season excellent that's that sounds like a sensible idea and i guess we we know that the regulators talk all the time uh, behind the scenes to to work out you know, the key areas that they're they're spotting in in the reviews wherever they're taking place in the world so there is a there's a commonality of approach uh, that uh, takes place uh, as they as they share their hot tips for, for, for what should be focused on so uh, we have the annual review of corporate reporting and uh, a, as ever uh, they have included in their report a sort of uh, the their highest priority areas those areas that lead to the to the most uh, most common observations to companies is, is there anything in there that caught your attention the thing that stands out maybe for the wrong reason is that the number one what I might call the regulatory hit parade is judgments and estimates again yeah. it was last year it was the year before uh, as far back as I remember the area of most challenge from, mm. from the FRC it is, has been around disclosure of judgments and estimates it remains there to be fair there's, there's, there are steps in the right direction yeah. uh, in respect to the disclosure companies give but it is an area of frequent challenge where companies aren't specific enough yeah. about the judgments they're making Simply saying, for example, determining whether an entity is a subsidiary requires the exercise of judgment doesn't tell anyone a great deal. Yeah. Because of, so what? 
um, what needs to be disclosed is where there is a specific judgment on that entity right there. Yeah. For this particular reason, that was quite a significant judgment in concluding that it was a subsidiary or a joint venture or associate or, or whatever it might be. And when it comes to estimation, the principal concern is around the sensitivity of estimates that are made to variation. So mm -hmm. here are some assumptions, and by the way, you should be disclosing the key assumptions, not just the ones that a certain accounting standard requires you to disclose. It follows, therefore, that the most significant assumptions for an impairment test aren't always the discount rate and long-term growth rate. Indeed. Margins might be one. It could be. It could be. But, okay, here are the assumptions. What sensitivity is there around these assumptions? And maybe for impairment, a bad example, because companies seeking to comply with IS 36 might give that sensitivity anyway. But actually, IS 1 says that wherever there is a significant estimate or mm. critical estimate or key estimate whatever phrase you might use and that is one where there is a significant risk of material change within the next 12 months you should be disclosing what's at risk here so what's the sensitivity or what might be the range of possible outcomes and that's a disclosure that maybe some entities and preparers are a little bit nervous about giving particularly when it comes to things like litigation provisions or, or, or similar matters but nevertheless, this is an area where FRC and others are looking for better disclosure to be given. I think I think that's a very fair point. And I guess if I look across some of the sectors that the FRC have focused on in the last 12 months, you know, they've had a particular focus, for example, on long-term contracting. Now, long-term contract accounting is one of those areas that does give rise to uh, significant estimates where uh, numbers can move materially by the next balance sheet date. So I think we have seen... Uh, a lot of evidence that the FRC is uh, focusing on entities that are affected by this and saying, can you, can you enhance your disclosures? Uh, that's so, right. So, um, but in terms of the judgments and estimates, I guess the FRC did say that companies are getting better at distinguishing, distinguishing between what is a judgment and what is an estimate. So it has, it has improved, but uh, uh, the, the, sort of the more nuanced points, the, the area of, of greatest focus is likely to be disclosure of uh, appropriately labelled critical estimates and, and how they might, uh, how the sensitivities might uh, evolve. That's right, and we'll no doubt in a little while be talking about the new standards that were adopted in the most recent round of annual reports and the new one yep. that's going to be adopted uh, in, the, in the year coming up. But uh, FRC and ESMA and others are keen to impress that those new standards involve judgment and estimation too, mm. and amongst the, the most significant criticisms, although criticism is too strong a word, of entities adopting, for example, IFRS 15, has been that companies are not being specific enough about what the accounting policies are. What really were the judgments around, for example, principal versus agent? Mm. Don't just quote the standard in saying, a principal is this, an agent is that, that doesn't help anyone, be specific. Yeah. And when it comes to estimation, if, if you're considering the financial statements of a bank, Expected credit losses, the provision, the impairment provision is a pretty big estimate that's being made and it's a complicated one. How specific are banks being? Maybe the big ones were actually did a really good job there, but are all banks being equally specific around the uh, estimation that's being disclosed and explained? Indeed, so that's uh, judgments and estimates, which as you say has been number one for a little while. Uh, elsewhere in their top 10, which they very helpfully list in their report, uh, uh, anything ca catch your eye? Well, it's, it's interesting, there's one that, that isn't there, but we've heard from FRC that um, when it comes to challenging companies, often the most complicated cases concern 
questions of control. Yes. Uh, so should an entity be consolidated as a subsidiary or is it a joint venture where you have a joint venture? How much clarity is there around the judgment exercise over the relative weighting of the um, different uh, rights that each party might have? So that, that, quite, that surprised me because... I mean, the standard no, hasn't changed. The standard hasn't changed. I've read standard's been around for a while. It's nothing new. And it's never appeared in one of the top 10 lists in previous years, but there it is, control questions being pulled out by the FRC as being not necessarily the most numerous, but, uh, numerous I'm sorry, but uh, certainly the most complicated. Uh, other areas that appear, tax mm. is increasingly um, drawing attention. Yeah. Uh, this was something that ESMA really drew attention to back in the summer, the ESMA concern being around recognition of deferred tax assets in respect of unused tax losses, uh, reminding entities that there needs to be a good assessment of the probability of future profits being available, and convincing evidence, convincing evidence yeah. needs to be available as well, where there has been a history of losses, which if you've got unused losses, we suggest you've been at losses at some point. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's going to be a degree of challenge around any entity, I suspect, that's recognising deferred tax assets in respect of losses. How good is the disclosure of the, here we go again, judgment that's been exercised mm -hmm. on the recognition of those assets um, and the calculation thereof and the estimates of future profitability. Uh, also in respect of tax, there's a, there's a reminder that whilst IFRA 23, which will be adopted this year, is new. And what I'm hearing is that for, for many entities, it's not prompting a great deal of change to the numbers. It's a kind of subtle reminder in IFRA 23 that, by the way, this might involve the exercise of, here we go again, judgments, <laughs> or maybe you're making estimates, yeah. and there might be an expectation that uh, there's going to be a bit more disclosure in that area in, in the next round of so tax is one that uh, is worth looking out for. Cash flow statements. <laughs> the old chestnut. Yeah, is, um, is a bit disappointing because the, the FRC view is not pointing towards something terribly complicated. It's just that they're seeing more mistakes. Mm -hmm. Particularly, it seems, around cash flows that seem to involve joint ventures. Payments to, receipts from, investments in, redemptions from joint ventures seem, sadly, frequently to be misclassified as between operating, financing and investing. Yeah. Uh, there are other examples, the FRC sites, of cash flows being misplaced yeah. or miscategorised. But as a, as a connected issue, and this might stray into another topic, not so much the cash flow statement itself, but a, a broader discussion of cash and liquidity um, is an area that, um, depending on, on where the listeners to this podcast are located, might well be front of mind around the liquidity of an entity and the information provided on risk, financial risk in particular, and liquidity and sources and uses of cash. A particular focus area for the FRC is the use of reverse factoring or supplier finance. Again, no new accounting standards there, but there is a, a quite clear desire amongst investors to see enhanced disclosure and transparency around the use of such arrangements. And the FRC has been quite transparent itself in its annual report in saying, we expect companies to disclose the existence and use of these arrangements without reference to any particular accounting standard. They just expect it to be transparent because questions are being asked, rightly or wrongly, about the absence of disclosure where it's common in a particular industry. If you've got entities one to seven all disclosing the use of supplier finance and entity eight doesn't within the same industry, questions start to be asked. So, Indeed they do. And I guess the if we think about the economic cycle, 
the across Europe, uh, economies are tending to slow down, which puts more strain on on companies, and is shining a light, I think, on the disclosures on uh, cash, liquidity, and indeed going concerns. So, uh, so with a, it doesn't take much of a crystal ball to say that that's going to be a priority area for the FRC and regulators around Europe in reviewing this this set of. Uh, financial statements that are uh, coming up. That's right, and this is a good segue into the area of risk generally. I've talked about liquidity mm. and, and sort of usage of cash, but uh, the the clarity uh, of the reporting in the, in the what we call the front half or narrative section of the annual report on the risks that an entity is facing and how they're being mitigated, um, where such disclosure is warranted, is, is increasingly important. We're recording this in November in the United Kingdom, and of course, many companies are disclosing the um, the exposure they might have to the uncertainty we're currently facing around Brexit, mm. what will happen and when that might happen. There is also a, a rapidly increasing focus on the impact of climate risk yes. uh, on companies. Um, there is a, will likely, I suspect, be uh, in the UK at least new reporting requirements in years to come, but within Europe, um, the non-financial reporting regulations or non-financial reporting directive that's been implemented in different ways in different countries is clearly being seen as a segue into better reporting, not just of companies' impact on the environment, but the environmental impact on companies as well, so-called double materiality concept. Yeah. And there is a, a, a very clear message coming out of the FRC that there should be clearer disclosure of the, the exposure yeah. that companies have. What are boards doing to take account of the resilience of a company um, in, in relation to climate risk? What are the risks and certainties and viability in both the immediate and longer term mm. as, uh, as the, the challenge of climate risk is, is facing everyone? And indeed, they mentioned climate risk in their impairment thematic to say this is something that companies should be mindful of. You know, it, does the change in climate have an impact on business models and should the companies be thinking about it when it comes to impairment testing? So, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's endemic through, through the financial statements. Mm. And I guess coming on to thematics, um, well, one final, final one from the from the top ten. Yeah. Uh, it, it it wouldn't be a conversation of of um, comments coming out of regulators without mentioning alternative performance measures <laughs> or non GAAP measures or, or whatever yeah. you choose to call them, and that they do loom large again. The view from the FRC is that actually the presentation and disclosure of APMs is getting better. The ESMA guidelines, uh, which are now in their fourth or fifth year, run for a while now. Have making a difference such that there is now much better disclosure of the of the measures. Uh, ha, the, how are they labelled? How are they used within the entity? Uh, how are they reconciled to the equivalent gap measure? Uh, are they used consistently? All the various good practice um, guidance. But nevertheless, uh, FRC has made it known that they will challenge companies that apparently don't follow their ESMA guidelines. So, for example, if they don't reconcile. A non-GAAP measure to the equivalent IFS measure, there were some quite harsh questions asked as to why mm. that is the case. Uh, equally, if something is described as non-recurring for the fifth or sixth consecutive year, yes. that might attract a bit of attention too. So, so APMs is there. indeed APMs were subject to the thematic review a couple of years ago, which I think was the a, uh, the FRC firing the starting gun on their their focus on this area. Um, but they've continued with their thematic reviews elsewhere. Are there any particular messages coming out of the, of the fall that we have seen in the last few weeks? 
the, the, the new standards we've already alluded to in the context of judgments and estimates, and when it comes to IFRS 15, first of all, the, the thrust of the feedback on IFRS 15 is for companies to do a better job of articulating the policy in a specific way that relates to the actual revenue streams of the company or the group and not just the wording mm -hmm. of the accounting standard, but also the judgments that have been made specifically in any estimation where it, where it might be relevant. A little bit of focus on, on the balance sheet and contract balances and uh, a little bit on disaggregation as well, but at the heart of the IFRS 15 domestic is really around the judgments and estimates of policies. IFRS 9 is largely focused on, on banks, credit institutions, where the feedback is mostly around expected credit losses and supply. The methodologies for and the clarity of those methodologies, the transparency of the policies around the calculation of expected credit losses and the disclosure, disclosure thereof. When it comes to non-banking companies, there's some interesting points made in the thematic, including, for example, can companies please make sure that they remove all their OIS that's not technology? <laughs> yeah. If the impact of IFRS 9 was considered to be immaterial, but it doesn't appear so from the numbers, why is that? Mm. So. Some things which might seem rather obvious, some companies it would, it would appear missed. Now, okay, IFRS 9 is now adopted, we can't really go back and do that again. But there's an opportunity with IFRS 16 coming up to learn from the IFRS 9 and IFRS 15 experience and, and, and put those learnings into play. When it comes to IFRS 16, the message is similar to the messages that were given around IFRS 9 and 15 a couple of years ago. So please be clear about how you have transitioned into the new standard. Uh, again, what were the judgments you made, for example, around lease term, around discount rate? How did you make those judgments specifically, not just quoting the standard? What expedients have been used, distinguishing mm -hmm. those that are something to do with transition and those that will be used on an ongoing basis? Um, an easy example there is uh, there is a practical expedient on first time adoption for leases, however long, but which only have 12 months or less to run on the date of adoption. There's a separate one for short-term leases which can be applied on an ongoing basis. Are you applying both of those, one of those, neither of those? Yeah. Just saying an exemption for short-term leases could be either, so or leases with less than A real focus for those, and frankly it's the majority of companies adopting the modified retrospective approach, to explain how the old IS-17 operating lease commitment morphs into a new IFRS 16 liability. That's the reconciliation that's, that's required. Well, it the standard doesn't require rec reconciliation, but it might be the best way of doing yeah. it. An explanation is what is required. So how do you get from A to B? And if getting from A to B includes one stop called discovering some leases we never knew we had, that needs to be explained somewhere. And there have certainly been over the past few years, many companies actually, who have been quite upfront in saying in their operating lease commitments that we've revised our operating lease commitment disclosure because We've identified some leases as part of the exercise we got to IFRS 16. Yeah. So be clear about how you get from A to B there. Also, again mentioning that it's the majority of companies following the modified retrospective approach, that will mean that the current year numbers might not be comparable from the, the last year's numbers. And if you are, have substantial numbers of leases and EBITDA is a key performance measure, then this year's EBITDA won't be comparable with last year's EBITDA. Yeah. In fact, in many cases, we're hearing of EBITDA becoming EBITDA with an R on the end or after leases or some other measure. So first of all, if you are changing your APMs, explain why and how. If you're keeping the same APMs, then explain to why. the extent 
that there has been a significant movement caused by a new accounting standard that isn't applied in the prior year. That needs to be explained to me. Excellent. Now, when it comes to IS 36, the, the thematic was not prompted by a new accounting standard, but very much prompted by the current economic environment and some um, uh, feedback from investors that disclosure and impairments could be improved. And consistent with a theme that we've had throughout this conversation, yeah, some entities could do a better job of explaining the estimates, the judgments that they've the judgments they've made, and the estimates that they've um, or the assumptions they've they've applied, yeah. uh, which would go beyond just a long term growth rate and the discount rate. On the whole, uh, most companies did something as well. There were a lot of really good good practice examples in the thematic review, but nobody was perfect. So it's around the assumptions that. Um, and the sensitivity of those outcomes that, that, that would be the most interest. One interesting point, which might be not applicable in every territory, because not every territory would include in the consolidated accounts the parent company's balance sheet or, or accounts. But um, FRC have started asking questions where the parent company's investment in subsidiaries is more than the market capitalization of the group. So if the group as a whole, in the eyes of the, of the capital market, is worth... 100 million and the investment in the parent company's accounts is carried at 150 million okay, that begs the question as to yeah. well first of all that's an, it's a prima facie that's an indicator of impairment so impairment should be done but if you haven't explained how you've got comfortable that it's not impaired then the yeah. FRC might well be writing you some letters excellent yes and so actually the, one of the reflections I would have on the thematic reviews in general and you did allude to it in that one is that um, for companies who are looking for examples of good reporting the FRC have helpfully included in the thematics they have done uh, extracts from disclosures of accounts where they think people have done a good job in particular areas, whether it's accounting policies for revenue, whether it's the lease transition disclosures or whatever. Um, so for, for anyone who's preparing financial statements, uh, they're, they're an easily accessible, short and helpful read. Yeah, I would agree with that. And we are almost out of time. But I, I just wondered if you've got any sort of final reflections on are there areas we haven't yet discussed uh, where the, the, uh, we think the regulators, whether in the UK or Europe, will be focusing over the next uh, next six to 12 months? Is there, are there any, any sort of developing areas that, uh, that are of concern or is it going to be kind of more of the same? The, the, the new leases standard will clearly be an area of focus, as will in the UK and, and maybe some other territories, some changes in narrative reporting requirements. Uh, we've got quite a few in the UK, and uh, as is always the case, when something new is applied, then regulators like to examine how that, is, uh, that has been adopted. The message I gave earlier on around risk, I think that um, we live in uncertain times, and uncertainty breeds risk, and there's nothing that capital markets like less than a surprise. Yes. So... I would encourage any people listening to this podcast responsible for preparing accounts to think carefully about just how transparent the risk disclosures are and particularly in areas where there might be an expectation of a particular exposure like climate risk, like the risks associated with the UK's decision to leave the European Union, maybe to do with liquidity and financing and uh, have a good think about whether more could be done to be, to be clearly articulating what that position is. And in the back half of the accounts, I think the parting shot ought to be what I've repeated several times in this conversation, that um, the disclosure on judgments and estimates are probably one of the more critical areas.
preparing some of the accounts, which shows actually here are the numbers that prepared, but how far away were we from preparing some different numbers? Yeah. And that's yes. quite important information. Excellent. Thank you, Peter, for your for your time today and sharing uh, an update from the uh, on the regulatory horizon. Uh, uh, and so thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you uh, require information, financial information or accounting information in the meantime, then uh, have a look on the PwC Inform or pwc.com forward slash IFRS. And in the meantime, a happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.